You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 22nd of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to the programme. Coming up... Israel is ready for another humanitarian pause and additional humanitarian aid in order to enable the release of hostages. But there is still no vote at the UN Security Council to agree on humanitarian aid for Gaza. We'll have the latest on whether they are any closer. Also coming up... These conversations, these these governments feeling like they have some kind of population emergency is inherently dangerous for the rights of women. Why are women disproportionately affected by an ageing society? We'll find out. And we'll hear more about Italy's Prime Minister making a power grab with a planned change to the Constitution. Plus the papers too. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in today's news. More than half a million people in Gaza, that's a quarter of the population, are now starving. That's according to the UN. Israel, meanwhile, says it's in the final stages of clearing out Hamas militants from northern Gaza. A national day of mourning has been declared in the Czech Republic after a student killed 14 people and injured 25 at a university in Prague. And the Colombian government says it will try to raise objects from the 1708 shipwreck of the galleon San Jose, which is believed to contain a cargo worth billions of dollars. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, is the UN Security Council moving closer to a vote on humanitarian aid for Gaza? Last night, the US said serious concerns remained about the latest draft of the UN Security Council resolution on Gaza that was originally due to be voted on at the beginning of the week. The text called for a suspension of hostilities and the key sticking point for the US appeared to be the proposed mechanism to monitor aid that enters Gaza. Washington being reportedly concerned that it could lessen Israel's control of the process. Well, I'm joined now by Nimrod Goran, who's Senior Fellow for Israeli Affairs at the Middle East Institute and the founder of the Israeli foreign policy think tank, Mitzvim. He joins me on the line from Jerusalem. A very good morning to you, Nimrod. Very good morning. So let's just bring ourselves up to date with this. This vote was supposed to happen on Monday. It has still not happened and has been delayed to today, later today on Friday. Yeah, it is currently planned for today, but as we've seen throughout the week, uh, it's not something we can take for granted. I think the big uh, development that happened overnight was that now there is a text of the resolution that the Americans and the Arabs are willing to agree on. That's something that wasn't the case in previous votes. So for the U.S., it was very important seemingly not to veto again. It showed how the U.S. was in a different position than other countries. And for the Americans to reach an agreement with the Emiratis, with other Arab countries on the text, I think that's important, but it's a text that is watered down compared to the original versions put on the table. So let's explore the the difference between the original draft and what we have now. We had, at the time, at the beginning, there was a call for a sustainable cessation of hostilities. That was something the US could not stomach. Um, The final version calls merely for the creation of conditions for one. Yeah, it cares for the conditions. It uh, changed the text regarding a UN mechanism that we're responsible for uh, checking the humanitarian aid. And instead, it is calling for 
the appointment of a coordinator on behalf of the UN that will be responsible for dealing with humanitarian issue, and it calls for the release of the Israeli hostages. So it changes the language on key issues that were important both for the US and Israel, and is now merely a humanitarian uh, decision, not talking mostly about politics and endgame of the war in Gaza. And even there, the, there have been sticking points about the humanitarian aid um, issue. I mean, I, I motion, mentioned a moment ago, is it because there were at one point they were going to call for the use of all land, sea and air routes for deliveries. But the United States said this is going to make it impossible for, for Israel to, to know exactly what is going on here. But the, the complaints have been, haven't they, that as it stands at the moment, there is only one way for getting aid into Gaza, and it has to go through an Israeli checkpoint first. It's actually expanding over time, and we see how Israel's position evolved throughout this war on humanitarian aid, because initially the statements coming from Netanyahu, and especially by his far-right ministers, was nothing will go into Gaza. The, the checkpoints between Israel and the Gaza state will remain closed. Uh, and over time, this has changed mostly because of American um, pressure or advice or request, maybe some um, messaging coming from uh, Egypt and Jordan. And we saw uh, several of the checkpoints on the Israeli side becoming open. We saw fuel entering. We saw uh, parachuting of aid through Jordanian planes. So we saw all kinds of modalities that basically enabled Israel to prolong the mandate that it gets for the international community to continue its work. So it's far from being enough for what the needs are on the ground, but it's crosses the threshold of the minimum that is expected from Israel to give, and that's more than uh, the Israeli government initially was willing to do. And if this UN Security Council resolution is passed in its watered-down form, is there a sense that Israel will will abide by it? First, uh, the Israeli discourse is not dealing with the UN Security Council resolution. When you wake up in the morning and hear the news, it's not as if people are following what happened throughout the night in New York. It's about... Uh, the names of soldiers killed that are being published every morning in 6 a.m. So that's where Israelis are currently at. It seems like a different type of game. Uh, the attitude in Israel towards the UN is that even if resolutions are passed, they are not necessarily implemented. You know, we are talking now a lot about Resolution 1701 from 2006 about Hezbollah and the border between Israel and Lebanon, a resolution that was in Israel's favor at the time, but it not really uh, made, um, made implemented. So the sense in Israel that the UN can decide, but eventually on the ground, what really matters is what's going on between the channels of the US and Israel, Egypt and Israel, and that's where decisions are being made. And the UN is about uh, opening the space for those things to happen without more pressure on the US to uh, put its pressure on Israel. As a result, where does the UN lie in, lie in terms of its influence in this situation? The UN uh, currently has very little influence uh, in Israel. It's lost uh, credibility. We even saw President Herzog, who is a moderate, constructive leader coming from the Israeli left, criticizing the UN yesterday. The sense in Israel is that the UN did not deliver during this war and is not um, uh, acting constructively. So I think if we are looking ahead and uh, when we are looking about transition period, out of the war and about some sort of international mechanism governing Gaza or helping the transition to Gaza back to the Palestinian Authority, uh, there will be a need to address this credibility issue of the UN uh, in Israeli eyes if the UN will be the one giving the mandate to any international mechanism in the future. So if not the UN, where does the external help with resolution come from? 
Uh, it could be all kind of multilateral um, groupings. You know, there, there definitely will need to be an American leadership component. You know, I think Israel will be open to to European and uh, Arab involvement. But where does the mandate come from, and what does it mean? Is it a Security Council resolution? If so, is Russia and China on board with such a Western-dominated mechanism that we established, or is it something that looks more like uh, all those peacekeeping forces, for example, that are based in Sinai between Israel and Egypt? that we're not going through the UN modalities. But I think that's something that will be addressed a bit later on. We are not there yet, but in terms of thinking about this regional configuration, regional mechanism that will help bring Gaza back on track and bring Israel's security back on track, uh, there needs to be a thought about which are the countries that could be helpful and how do you bring them together already now, together with the moderate Israelis and Palestinians who are willing to take part in these discussions. Tell me a little bit about the, the, the United States now and its shifting position when it comes to the conflict in Gaza. I mean, there, there seems to be an enormous amount of pressure from, from the US to make this Security Council resolution succeed, even to the point where it fundamentally changes its nature within, within the space of four days. Is there a sense now that Washington does feel as if it could be the driving force? I think Washington is a driving force for most of the things that are happening around this war. But it's very clear that Washington is not changing its basic position of support of the Israeli war objectives of taking Hamas out of power in Gaza. Uh, but that it's very much concerned on the humanitarian issue and on its image and standing within the international community, not wanting to be seen as isolated uh, in the world, in the region. I think that has implications also for domestic politics in the U.S. as Biden goes into an election year. So the U.S. wants to tone down from this sense that it is uh, totally on Israel's side and cannot work with international partners. But on the other hand, I think that's a traditional policy of the U.S. It wants to hold the cards and does not want to see the U.N. perhaps too involved in shaping the realities. We saw that in previous escalation in Gaza, where the U.S. was the one mediating the ceasefire and was blocking all kind of Security Council resolution that seems to interfere in the efforts that Washington was doing. In that context, where does what happens now insofar as there is that sense that Hamas will go its own way and Israel certainly likes to go its own way? We are seeing kind of a move towards a change of phasing in the fighting or the, in the, the nature of the fighting between Israel and Hamas. And we saw it from you know, the heavy air raids at the beginning and then the ground operation and then the pause for the release of hostages and then again the operation within the northern part and central part of Gaza, which is a bit different in nature. And now it seems in Israel that somewhere around uh, January, there is a renewed attempt to get a pause for the release of another bunch of hostages if Hamas will be willing to do so. And there may be some realignment of the IDF within the Gaza Strip to change the way of operation because it's very difficult to maintain this high intensity level of fighting over time. And I think that change will also be very much in line with the American aspiration to see the Israeli operation less targeting civilians, causing less damage to people in Gaza, uh, putting more emphasis on humanitarian issues, but still going after Hamas and its leaders in a much more precise way. Finally, Nimrod, you mentioned at the start of this interview that the, the, the Israel isn't paying that much attention to what's happening at the UN Security Council. What is dominating the headlines in Jerusalem where you are? And what's daily life now like? Daily life are difficult because many Israelis have been uh, suffering from what happened in October 7th and the aftermath. Many people lost relative friends. It's very personal. Many people have uh, people they care about that are fighting in Gaza that they don't have regular contact with. And again, it's every morning we wake up and hear of more soldiers that have been killed and we have 
uh, sirens going on in different parts of the country yesterday in Tel Aviv midday. So daily lives are interrupted. People are very worried. People don't see necessarily how this is ending in a way uh, that leads to a better reality in a quick manner. So it's kind of an understanding that this situation is going to go on for a while. Uh, in parallel to an aspiration uh, to see some political change and that Israel deserves a leadership that can take better care of our needs and our future. Uh, that is still low key because it's difficult to talk politics when a war is happening, but I think the political discourse is becoming more and more uh, relevant as well. Nimrod Gurren on the line from Jerusalem. Thank you so much for joining us on The Globalist. You're listening to Monocle Radio. It's 8.12 in Rome, 7.12 here in London. Now, it is a bold leader who attempts to change their country's constitution. Such moves are often viewed with suspicion. Why, after all, would you want to mess with a set of long-agreed principles unless it were for political or personal gain? Well, this has been the accusation made at Italy's Prime Minister, Giorgia Meloni, after she proposed alterations to two parts of the Italian constitution. And I'm joined now by Claudio Lavanga, who's an NBC journalist uh, new, based in Rome. A very good morning to you, Claudio. Good morning, Emma. So what are these changes that uh, Signora Meloni is proposing? Well, she's basically proposing a complete overhaul of the voting system. The proposal is that the party or coalition that gets the highest number of votes in an election gets a 55% uh, share of the seats in parliament, which is basically a power grab. It's a winner-takes-all rule. Another, Another big change, even bigger, is that before the election, each party or coalition nominates a candidate for prime minister who automatically then leads the government uh, should his party win. Why? I mean, it sounds like a good idea, uh, but uh, the problem here is that uh, the party or coalition that wins the election will receive a disproportionate concentration of power and gets to rule Italy practically undisturbed. And just to give you a practical example, the last elections at the end of 2022, Meloni's Brothers of Italy party won the elections uh, with 26% of the votes, but she had to rely, as it always happens in Italy, on her right-wing uh, coalition parties. And altogether, they got 43% of the votes, which is then reflected in the number of seats uh, they got in Parliament. If that constitutional change um, was approved back then, Meloni and her coalition partner will get 55% of the seats in Parliament, more than 10%, 10% more than they have now. Um, and some say this is the gateway to... Uh, an authoritarian rule, basically. Indeed. I mean, how how clearly are the accusations that this is a very obvious power grab? Well, she's been accused of a power grab because obviously she's leading the polls for one year after the election. She's uh, Her brothers of Italy party has grown uh, to 28%. Uh, the problem with Italy is that um, it, it, the, the governments are, as you know, very unstable. I mean, in 73 years, we had 69 governments, which means that um, the the governments lasted for an average of a little more than one year, uh, and mainly because governments rely on too many coalition parties and leaders, they have the power to make it collapse at any time. So prime ministers need to, uh, in Italy, need to compromise all the time with their, with her or his coalition partners. By approving this uh, law, she could claim, if she won, of course, which sounds like she would right now, she could claim that uh, the Italians her uh, directly and nobody can move her uh, from her seat. And, you know, the last time someone has done something like this uh, was a man called Benito Mussolini. And since Meloni never hid her appreciation for the man as a young right-wing militant, uh, that makes the prospect 
you know, scarier. Indeed, I think the, the law the, or the change that you're referring to is, is something because it was the Acerbo law from 1923. The fact that they are, the fact that accusations and comparisons are being drawn so clearly between um, Meloni and Mussolini, it, it does what for the government and um, for Meloni's reputation? Well, the, the thing is that Meloni never, you know, as I said, she never hid the fascination for Mussolini. She cooled it down, she toned it down since she became prime minister. But as a young right-wing militant, uh, she uh, basically said, I mean, she was 23 back then, but she said that, you know, he was the greatest politician Italy's ever had. Uh, so I don't think that she's too worried uh, about comparisons. I mean, nobody, nobody am I thinking that Italy is going towards another uh, fascist rule. Uh, I don't think that that can happen. But certainly she's learning from the past uh, and she's trying to... Uh, make this power grab by making it look like she's doing this for uh, Italy and more stable governments in the future. Um, just explain to us a little bit about this. Um, what what some people are suggesting is a, is a fascination, if not near obsession, with tinkering with the Constitution. I mean, you mentioned that there have been, what, nearly 70 governments since World War II, but by all accounts, nearly every government in Italy in the last 20 years has somehow tried to introduce a new electoral law, a new constitutional change, or a new change between Rome and the rest of the country. I mean, why is that? (laughs) Well, the last politician who tried to do that was Matteo Renzi, I think it was about 10 years ago. And and there is a pattern here, because Matteo Renzi back then was very popular. He won something like 40% of the votes in uh, the European elections. And they just get convinced that because they're so popular, uh, then the Italians will vote for these um, constitutional changes. He did try. It, it wasn't this bad. I mean, this is this is a lot bigger than whatever he tried to do. Uh, but the way it works here is that unless you have two thirds of approval in both houses, then the bill, the constitutional changes can be introduced without a referendum. But because nobody has that, then the vote needs to go to a referendum. And the Italians are then the ones that will ultimately decide. And the Italians have decided in the past that they do not want this change. Um, so just explain to us how likely her plans are of success. Well, as I mentioned, they, it will probably go to a referendum. She continues with this proposal. Uh, the coalition has approved the bill, but then it will have to go to a vote. And two thirds of the uh, lower and upper house uh, need to uh, two thirds of, of the parliament will have to approve it. Uh, but this is not the case. It's it's very unlikely because obviously the opposition has already said they will not vote in favor of it, and it will have to go to a referenda. Uh, what will happen then? Uh, because you know she seems to have an appeal for the Italians. Uh, that is anybody's guess. I don't know whether this time um, the Italians will uh, vote in favor of these changes. Claudio Lavanga, thank you so much for joining us as ever on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist and still to come on today's programme. piece of Ukrainian music which has now become world famous at this time of the year. We'll be looking at how Ukraine is now taking back control of its Christmas calendar. Stay with us. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. 
We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Let's continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Claudine Fry, partner at Control Risks. Good morning. Welcome back to the studio, Claudine. Thank you. How Emma. are things in in the fry world? <laughs> Good morning. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. Well, um, we're in the mood for hibernating in the fry household. Excellent. Well, it's three days till Christmas, so um, <laughs> I'll I'll just drag you out of your cave for 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 a few <laughs> m- brief moments in order to find out what's happening in the papers. Now, with your geopolitical scanner on, um, you've picked something in the Financial Times, haven't you? Which sort of raised an eyebrow when I read it. That's right, Emma. I have my geopolitical hat on for the news review today. And I've picked something from the Financial Times about the US and China resuming military contacts at the highest level. This is the US and China resuming the contacts that were abruptly called off in anger by China uh, in August 2022 after the Democrat senior politician Nancy Pelosi um, as then majority leader of the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C., visited Taiwan and uh, contributed to a further deterioration of the U.S.-China relationship as a consequence. So this, these talks between um, the military chiefs of U.S. and China are symbolically significant, but I think they also had some substance to them as well. Both, both countries clearly have an intent to avoid that relationship worsening further. The talks followed uh, face-to-face contact between the presidents Biden and Xi last month on the sidelines of APAC in the US. And clearly both sides are uh, showing some commitment to trying to keep things on an even keel, perhaps not necessarily improving the relationship substantively, but keeping things on a relatively even keel. One does sometimes forget about Nancy Pelosi driving a car, you know, horse and cart through international <laughs> military relations last year. Um, but the, let's talk a little bit about what they actually talked about, because if you, if, you know, if you have uh, General C.Q. Brown and General Liu Zhenli Having a phone call, I mean, after more than a year of conversations with huge amounts of um, huge troubles militarily across the world, lots of people quite worried that China is looking at what Russia is doing in Ukraine and wondering whether it it has similar thoughts for Taiwan. I mean, what do you actually begin to talk about in a a phone call like this? You know, I think the situation is such that even the fact they're talking and saying niceties to each other is substantive. I think that's that's where we are. That's the state of affairs. And so, as far as we know from the readouts from both governments, these were about just expressing the importance of the fact that they're talking to each other, keeping the lines of communication open. I don't think, from what we've seen, that they've got into the substance of any of the issues which continue to be very serious sources of mistrust and hostility between the US and China. And of course, yes, indeed, there are many which are 
linked to uh, military posturing and disputes over territory, the role that China is playing globally, um, particularly with respect to its support for Russia. And of course, there are many other issues that are complicating the US-China relationship outside the military domain as well. And we saw China this week introducing fresh controls on the export of um, certain forms of tech relating to rare earth minerals. We expect to see a lot more of that sort of regulatory tit for tat. Um, And we have elections coming up in Taiwan in January as well, which will be an opportunity for us to see more rhetoric um, and and sort of uh, flexing of muscles, I think, particularly from China. The FD gives a sort of an indication of just how bad the relationships have been that I was unaware of a thing called the Military Maritime Consultative Agreement, which basically helps reduce the chances of an incident at sea escalating into something much, much worse. And there is always that terrible feeling that a one tiny accident or one misunderstanding can precipitate into something much, much more serious. Exactly. The fact that the Military Maritime Consultative Agreement is not in existence at the moment yes. is a sign that actually were something terrible to happen or were something small-ish to happen, it wouldn't suddenly tip over into something bigger. That infrastructure is not there at the moment, is it? That's right. And we expect to see a lot more uh, lines of military communication opening over the course of 2024. But from a very low level, this is what we want to see if we are going to feel confident about our line, certainly at control risks, which is that the US-China relationship is going to be on a relatively even keel over the next year. We need to see evidence of those basic forms of communication um, that and, and those sort of safety nets. Um, are in place so that in the event of miscalculation or accident, there is um, there is an opportunity to contain the fallout. Meanwhile, in Pyongyang, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the Korea Herald is is talking about something which has been um, been around for about twenty four hours now. But but there is this promise by uh, the North Korean leader Kim Jong Un that he will press the nuclear button in the event of nuclear provocations from the enemy. Um, Can we just establish what nuclear provocations from the enemy might look like? (laughs) That's a good question, Emma. Um, And it's it's an important caveat to what um, Kim, the leader of North Korea, is saying. Uh, That could be interpreted, um, I think, in many ways in Pyongyang. And I don't think we should read a huge amount into this, literally, but I think it's an opportunity to just remind us uh, all that North Korea and uh, the issues around the status of that territory and its nuclear ambitions, they haven't gone away. They've been off the headlines, certainly in many uh, in many countries outside Northeast Asia for, for some time, particularly over the last couple of years with Ukraine and Israel Hamas more recently dominating our attention. But North Korea is one of the perennial flashpoints. And Kim is in a notable position of strength. Um, you know, he has survived the pandemic. He is under 40 years old. There are many years left of Kim. And um, he has combined a strong relationship with China with now also close relationship with Russia and, and specifically with President Putin. We need to take his um, his threats and comments uh, seriously, while not being alarmist about them. He is going to last most of it, outlast most of us, isn't he? I mean, we're in it for the long call with Kim. Horrifyingly. It's, of course, it's not that long ago. Uh, it was only 2018, 2019 that he was he was meeting Trump, of course. So he, I think he's one of the people who will be um, interestingly, he will have particularly interesting thoughts about the possibility of Trump potentially returning to the US presidency after the elections there in late November. But all of this is particularly alarming for Seoul and Tokyo, who are very, very nervous about 
the future of their relationship with the US and, and obviously that's shrouded in extreme levels of uncertainty at the moment. Um, now one of the things you do at Control Risks is is look at the risks I would imagine and the risks of 2024. Um, where did Venezuela Guyana figure on the on the <laughs> Control Risks Christmas list this year? <laughs> yes Emma, I wanted to also pick out this New York Times piece about Venezuela's claims to parts of Guyana because we uh, have included in one of our wild cards for 2024 the possibility of uh, resource-driven conflict. And this this is one which we are monitoring closely. Um, Venezuelan President Maduro has made a claim to a significant portion of Guyana's territory. Guyana is a comparatively much smaller country, but um, both countries, it's a really interesting juncture. Guyana has come out of nowhere to be a really significant player uh, as an oil producer, um, just within the last few years, racing to make the most of peak demand for oil, which is expected to occur before the end of this decade. Venezuela, meanwhile, uh, this is probably a domestic move on Maduro's part. He's, he's under some pressure um, on the domestic front, and we don't think there's necessarily going to be a serious conflict erupting. Um, but I think it's 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 one to watch and, and definitely yet another distraction that the US does not need right now. Um, it's, it's There's a very interesting article in the New York Times that... that raises the idea that actually the Venezuelans have been talking about this for decades and decades and, and Guyana has just had to sort of keep try and keep a lid on it. That's right. Um, and, and it's really an opportune moment to resurface a border issue that uh, in truth goes back many, many hundreds of years. Both countries are, um, let's not forget, incredibly uh, suffering with enormous levels of poverty at the moment and really serious um, absence of the skilled talent that they will need, particularly Guyana, in fact, even very much on the up. Um, with a government that's seen as one that, you know, companies and, and, and uh, the West can do business with. Um, ExxonMobil is there particularly and made the oil discoveries that um, are transforming its prospects, but faces really significant challenges uh, from from being able to materialise um, the wealth that should flow from that oil generation. And clearly it's going to attract uh, challenges for the country as well. Finally, that um, age-old perception of politicians, there's a really good article, I think it's in USA Today, isn't there, about how... Um, Nikki Haley is having to behave differently as a prospective Republican presidential candidate because she is a woman. Because there is the general principle, isn't there, that if you are a politician and a woman, you must express a, a sign of empathy, you must have a softer side to you, you must even have a, a gentler voice in order to succeed. Yeah, that's right, Emma. This, this article caught my attention because... There's some really interesting research in here, and I think it applies outside the world of politics as well. I'm sure all of us as working women can relate to some of the points that it's making. Um, the Barbara Lee Family Foundation research is cited, for example, which has pointed to the importance of likability for female candidates in particular. Um, and, and it's something that male their male counterparts just simply don't have to demonstrate in order to um, have appeal at the ballot box. This article is based on a number of interviews that the USA Today conducted with Republican voters who have described hearing Nikki Haley as being a bit like having a hug um, and described how comforting it is to listen to her. But actually, you know, she is trailing, of course, in the polls. And in fact, um, I think the New York Times uh, had a poll earlier this month which suggested that female Republican voters, 63% of them actually prefer Trump. Very small portion of them would actually vote for Haley at the moment. And yet they enjoy hearing and, and listening to her. And I don't think likability is ever going to be 
a problem necessarily, but clearly it doesn't actually translate necessarily into winning votes. But it is nonetheless, according to the data, more important for women than men. So certainly not a level playing field on that front yet. And Nikki Haley hug. What a Christmas present. Claudine Fry, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. The time here in London is 7.31. You're listening to The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A quick look now at the headlines. A national day of mourning has been declared in the Czech Republic after a student killed 14 people and injured 25 at a university in Prague. The man, thought to be in his early 20s, is believed to have shot his father before opening fire in the philosophy department building of Charles University. More than half a million people in Gaza, that's a quarter of the population, are now starving. That's according to a report by the UN and other agencies which warned that the risk of famine is now increasing each day. Israel, meanwhile, says it's in the final stages of clearing out Hamas militants from northern Gaza, but that months of fighting lie ahead in the south. A Norwegian cruise ship suffered a power outage and lost the ability to navigate after a wave struck and shattered its windows on the bridge. All 266 passengers and 131 crew members aboard the MS Maud are believed safe. The ship, which is currently in the North Sea, is on its way to the UK from Norway. And the Colombian government says it will try to raise objects from the 1708 shipwreck of the Galleon San Jose, which is believed to contain a cargo worth billions of dollars. The 300-year-old wreck, often called the Holy Grail of shipwrecks, has been controversial because it is both an archaeological and economic treasure. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. All this week on The Globalist, we've been exploring ageing populations. And in the final instalment of this week's series, we look at the implication for women's rights. As countries try to encourage higher fertility rates through schemes like monetary incentives for bigger families, some campaigners and human rights activists worry the rhetoric is becoming more extreme in other areas to pressure women into bearing children. They fear it could lead to putting limits on reproductive choices. Monocle's Laura Kramer has more. Earlier this month, reports of the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un tearing up in front of thousands of women made headlines as he begged them to have more children and stop the decline of the nation's birth rate at a national mother's meeting. Not long after, the Russian President Vladimir Putin said he was against banning abortion, but that terminations were against state interests and wanted women to, quote, safeguard the life of the child in order to resolve the demographic problem. Human Rights Watch Associate Director of the Women's Rights Division, Heather Barr, says this rhetoric from world leaders is part of a wider crackdown. We're seeing a backlash against women's rights in a lot of places around the world. I mean, one place that unfortunately kind of epitomizes that is the return of the Taliban in Afghanistan. But while that's a really extreme example, we're seeing pretty severe setbacks to women's rights in a lot of places around the world. And so I don't think it's paranoid or fantastic at all to feel like government's concerns about birth rates could be used as an excuse or could fuel some of that backlash in some of the places where, you know, that's a particular concern to governments. And where have you been seeing that this is happening specifically due to the conversation around the slowing birth rates? Well, I I think, you know, we're seeing we're seeing attacks on 
reproductive rights across multiple different countries in, in different ways. And sometimes there's a link between um, discussions about population and these attacks, and sometimes there isn't. But, you know, I think that overall, these conversations, these governments feeling like they have some kind of population emergency is inherently dangerous for the rights of women. To countries where activists say a rollback on access to reproductive services has been directly attributed to declining populations are China and Iran. Here is Alistair Curry, the head of campaigns at Population Matters, a UK charity that advocates for addressing global issues related to population growth and unsustainable consumption. We've actually just seen literally in the last couple of weeks in China the leading Communist Party forum for women being addressed by President Xi in China saying, not even effectively, bluntly saying, we need more women to be having more babies, talking about the values and how the Chinese government says very explicitly that having kids is not just a matter for individuals, it's a matter of interest for the state. And China's a very good example of somewhere where we know that China hasn't hesitated to restrict human rights and women's rights in order to achieve its goals when it comes to population. Probably the area which gives gravest concern is Iran at the moment. So I think people are very familiar with the oppression that women are suffering in Iran at the moment to do with issues obviously like the hijab and that kind of social sphere. But what is less well known is Iran is very, very explicitly restricting access to contraception, to abortion, to sterilization on the grounds of boosting its birth rate. And Iran is pretty frank, again, about the reasons for that. It is a regional superpower and it believes it needs a big population in order to do that, that its economic well-being and its geopolitical power stems from having a bigger population and a younger population, and that's what it wants. And it is not hesitating to restrict rights. And of course, in Iran, that goes with potentially very severe punishments and consequences. But is there any evidence to suggest that these measures even increase birth rates? Heather Barr again. Well, no. I mean, there seems to be quite a bit of evidence that government interventions don't affect people's decisions about how many children to have very much. I mean, of course, we have some examples to the contrary, like China's one-child policy, which was so brutally enforced that it did impact people's choices about fertility, but less heavy-handed approaches, you know, giving cash bonuses or even measures that are positive, like, you know, extending parental leave and so on, just don't actually seem to have that much of an impact, you know? I think it's it's much better to focus on what are some of the factors that might be influencing what family size people decide to have and, and are there ways that you can make it easier for people to have the family size that they want. Feminists have also thought about this issue and they've thought about how improving women's equality in the workplace, in the home, reducing the disproportionate caregiving burden on women, reducing discrimination against women who are pregnant and are parents in the workplace, improving equal pay based on gender. These are all measures that actually might have some impact in terms of helping women, helping families to be able to decide if they want to, to have another child or to have a child in the first place. And so it would be great to see governments doing more to explore those strategies rather than trying to look at coercive measures or different forms of sort of bribery. For Monocle in London, I'm Laura Kramer.
Many thanks to Laura there. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Nine thirty-nine in Kiev, eight thirty-nine in Zurich. Now to Ukraine. Now we're like much of the rest of Europe, they'll be celebrating Christmas Day on the twenty-fifth of December. But for Ukrainians, this is a wildly defiant act as part of mounting a strong cultural resistance to Russia. In addition to the military fight back, Ukraine has changed away from the Julian calendar, under which Christmas is normally celebrated on the Jan- on January the seventh, and it's now adopted the twenty-fifth of December instead. To tell us. More. Monocle's Julia Lassica joins me. She's a British-Ukrainian journalist based in London. A very good morning to you, Julia. Hi, thank you so much for having me on the show. And happy Christmas when it comes. I mean, how does it feel to have Christmas on Monday and not January the 7th? Um, well, to be honest, my whole life has I've had two Christmases um, because my family is Catholic as well as Protestant, um, uh, Orthodox, sorry. So we've had um, Christmas you know, two Christmases our whole lives and it's been quite normal for us. Um, But now it's sort of nice to see our Orthodox family coming over to celebrate with us as well on the Catholic um, and Protestant Christmas, like with the rest of the world. So just explain a little bit the change in tradition. I mentioned a moment ago that normally um, the Orthodox calendar has January the 7th as a a possible Christmas day. And this is the day in uh, where, and this day is celebrated in Russia, um, yes. So for year, for my whole life growing up, um, my Ukrainian family, um, who are mostly Orthodox, they would be, everyone would be celebrating, and we would celebrate in London on the sixth of January, going on to the seventh. So that would be our holy night, um, our Christmas Eve, um, and you know we'd have our like very traditional Ukrainian Christmas then. Um, which would be celebrated separately to our normal Catholic Christmas um, that we would be celebrating with the Catholic side, our Polish side. And so now I think, to be honest, I don't think that it's so, it's such a radical change really, because I think Ukrainians are used to this diversity of faiths and religions and sort of dates. And we're kind of used to being on two sides of, you know, one foot um, in the sort of Western European, Eastern European traditions, and then also in the Orthodox traditions. And Ukrainians are used to this diversity and complexity. But I think that many people will cheekily be celebrating, you know, on the 25th, the 24th uh, with the rest of the world. And then they'll also keep a few of their traditions for the 6th and 7th, because why not have more than one festivity? Well, will will that genuinely be the case? Because the the decision... I am led to believe is is made because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and this strong, powerful desire to separate the cultural connections as as much as possible between Russia and Ukraine. Yes, of course. We want uh, we Ukrainians want a, t- a total break from Russia. We the Ukrainians would like to be not associated with that country anymore. And so this um, change in calendar is part of a the whole multitude of changes that Ukrainians are bringing into place from language to music to food, everything. Um, But I think that um, there's also a feeling of, you know, it's nice to have more than one festivity. And absolutely, the main celebrations will definitely be be happening on the 24th as a way to just be normal like the rest of the world, celebrate with the rest of the world and be in step with the modern world. Um, Julie, what other what other huge cultural changes are taking place in Ukraine? As as Russia obviously invades, um, 
there is a, a huge desire, isn't there, to you know the promotion of Ukrainian culture? I mean, what what is happening? Um, well, the first thing to uh, consider is language. Um, a lot of people did speak um, Russian as their language at home or their language out in the streets. This was petering off as after the 2014 revolution um, and people were definitely making a very conscious change to switch over to Ukrainian. And, you know, this follows centuries um, and decades of Russian colonization, of Russian being imposed as the state language, being imposed on homes and schools um, and in kind of um, formal environments. Um, And people were making a conscious change, but language is the biggest one. Also music, which music are people listening to in buses? I think now that Russian music, for example, has been totally banned in public spaces um, because it's such a symbol of the Russian world. Um, You know, even the music that you're dancing to would be in Russian. Um, Also in food, what kind of foods are Ukrainians eating? For example, um, there are lots of Soviet dishes that are much beloved, but they will be put away. You know, we won't be uh, Ukrainians won't be eating um, Soviet dishes um, at New Year's Eve or Christmas Eve. Um, just to mark their change and mark. Also, I think this is a really important moment for Ukraine in terms of pride in its own traditions, pride in its own language, own music, own culture, etc. Because for so many decades and centuries, Ukrainians were told that Russian was the sort of dominant and was the most important and most beautiful culture. And now Ukrainians are taking pride in this and joining the rest of the world and taking pride in their own cultures and languages, etc. Julia Lessiger, thank you for joining us on The Globalist. You with Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. now to talk business with Victoria Scholar, who's Head of Investment at Interactive Investor. A very good morning to you, Victoria. Morning. Um, let's talk about the Red Sea and the, the sort of the unfathomably huge impact that it is having on uh, shipping. Um, IKEA has already come out and said there will be delays in its products. Yes, that's absolutely right. The low-cost furniture brand said its supplies could be delayed following these Houthi rebel attacks on ships in the Red Sea. We know that several companies have had to reroute their ships, which is adding days to their routes. And there are concerns that this will lead to shortages and delays of products, as well as potentially higher prices if there are shortages. Uh, For Christmas, though, it doesn't look as though there's going to be any disruption because uh, this disruption is taking some time to filter down to the stores Um, but it could come about in around February time uh, according to a supply chain research company Project 44 uh, which is estimating that that could be when we start to see some uh, items missing from shelves Uh, but an interesting fact is that um, some shipping analysts are estimating that these longer journeys uh, is costing each extra one million dollars. Um, one can only imagine how that's going to be passed on to us as the consumers. Um, let's have a look at the uh, the UK economy. Some music, some some news coming out of the United Kingdom this morning, which is uh, it is a, it's being suggested that Britain is on the road to recession. 
That's right. So it was a final estimate. And normally we don't see that much of a change uh, at the, the final uh, reading. But actually, uh, for the third quarter, we understood now that the UK economy shrank by 0.1%, which is uh, down from its previous estimates for uh, zero growth. Now, this is important because uh, two consecutive quarters of negative growth is the technical hurdle that's uh, required uh, to reach a recession. So now we've had that one quarter of negative growth in the third quarter. Uh, we've also had uh, GDP figures for October, which came in negative as well. Uh, so if we continue to see weakness in November and December, which a lot of indications are pointing to, uh, then, then we, we will be in a, a recession. But you know, for many, it has felt like we're in a recession already because of those pressures from cost of living crisis, elevated inflation and higher interest rates for some time. What, what is causing this in the UK in particular? Well, I think it's those pressures, like I mentioned, it's been this post-COVID revival of inflation that has made everything more expensive. Uh, it's made business costs go up sharply uh, and it's made food prices increase. Uh, and then it's been the policy response from the Bank of England in terms of tightening monetary policy to try and curtail uh, those price pressures, which have actually uh, added to uh, costs for mortgage holders, as well as uh, borrowing costs for businesses. Um, and so it's a kind of a combination of that post-COVID uh, bounce back in prices, coupled with higher interest rates, which continue to uh, squeeze purses. Finally, uh, Nike shares have plunged. Why is that? Yes, that's right. The stock fell by nearly 12% uh, last night. Uh, that's because the company lowered its guidance for full year sales. It was expecting somewhere around uh, the low single digits, so maybe around 3 or 4% in terms of revenue growth this year. Now it's expecting just 1%. Um, it's aiming to uh, achieve $2 billion worth of cost savings over the next three years. And it's trying to launch new styles as well to boost demand. Um, but it's been struggling with the weak consumer backdrop. It's been forced to offer heavy promotions and discounts, which can weigh on its profitability. It's also struggled with online sales and the slowdown in the world's second largest economy, uh, China. Also, its wholesale business um, has been struggling because retailers have been more cautious about how much stock they're willing uh, to purchase. So it's a pretty tough time for uh, Nike, and that's why the stock has uh, plunged last night. And briefly, it's had an effect on its on the retailers who sell Nike, hasn't it? Yes, that's right. Um, we're definitely going to see a read across for uh, some of those uh, retailers, like you say, that um, do stock Nike uh, shoes and other items. Um, now, we know that those businesses are being a lot more cautious in terms of how much stock they're willing to take on, um, partly because of their expectations for uh, more sluggish demand going into 2024. Victoria Scholar, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're with The Globalist. Now, for more than 40 years, it's been a holiday tradition in the United States capital of Washington to go to see Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol performed at Ford's Theatre, the site of Abraham Lincoln's assassination. A monocle's Chris Chermack went along to a performance and heard from cast members about the enduring message of A Christmas Carol and also examined what Lincoln himself might have thought of the play. Mm. 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 
designers of the tech for this entire show, but particularly for the Ghost of Marley scene, have really done a wonderful job. I mean, the sound comes bounding down and the lights. <laughs> I'm immensely helped by that. I am also immensely helped by the words of Charles Dickens. Every word of the Ghost of Marley that I say on that stage was written by Charles Dickens in 1843. Why do spirits walk the earth? And why do they come to me? It is required of every man that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men and travel far and wide. And if that spirit goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death! <laughs> and I gotta tell you, it is remarkable to say those words in this theater to our audience. It is required of every man that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men and travel far and wide. That is the essence but that Charles Dickens was trying to get across to his British audience in 1843, and that what you should do with your life is take care of other people. Look out for mankind. I don't want to get too emotional about it, but it is a wonderful opportunity because people still need to hear that message. Welcome to A Christmas Carol at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. The actor you're hearing is Stephen Schmidt, who plays the ghost of Jacob Marley and is also one of the show's longest-running cast members. Ford's Theater, site of one of the most shocking events in U.S. history, President Abraham Lincoln's assassination by John Wilkes Booth in 1865. After the assassination, Ford's Theater was closed for more than 100 years, but it reopened as a performing venue in 1968. Many are shocked I've, I've encountered many people who go, wait, you still do shows at Ford's? I had no idea. This is Chris Stinson, who plays the younger, happier Marley of Christmas's past in the Ford's Theatre show. Obviously, the history of the building speaks for itself, but the personal history that I have with this building and this production just adds layer upon layer. It's a tradition. You can't have Christmas without it. Around in Washington, for many, that is the strong feeling. It's a, it's a real honor to be able to carry that tradition on. Amplifying this location even more is the fact that when you do go to Ford's Theater now, you can still see the balcony, the booth where Lincoln was seated up to the left of the stage. The booth is undisturbed and serves as a kind of memorial to the fallen president. For many of us, because Lincoln was shot there, it, it's become a, a de facto sacred space. This is Jose Carrasquillo, Ford Theatre's Director of Artistic Programming, who also supervises the direction of A Christmas Carol. You look at the booth and you look at the fact that we're being paid to be there to create art. It's very moving to me. And it's moving because one of the things about the legacy of Lincoln is that he loved performing arts. You know, he went to the theatre a lot. Besides Lincoln's love for theatre, there are also some surprising links between Lincoln and Charles Dickens. The two were contemporaries, and Dickens was in Washington, D.C., performing A Christmas Carol, just a few years after Lincoln was assassinated. Mr. Dickens visited America twice in his life. The second time he was here, on February 3rd, 1868, he performed 
A Christmas Carol at Carol Hall, which is one block away on G Street. So that's like, he was here. Stephen Schmidt, the ghost of Marley, actor and something of an American history buff, shows me a huge binder of information he keeps that includes this record of Dickens' performances in the United States. I'm assuming when he was here in 1867 and 1868 that he had heard, of course, about the assassination. It's a theater. I wouldn't, I'm sure he walked by this deserted building at the time. For me, a lot of that stuff is, it feels almost like a holy coincidence that we get to do it at Ford's Theater. And then there's the general message of the carol. Dickens was an abolitionist, and he wrote a Christmas carol at least partly in reaction to the inequality and poverty he'd seen on a previous visit to the United States in the 1840s. For the performers, Scrooge's arc of redemption and newfound empathy is as fitting in Washington today as it was back in the time of Lincoln and the American Civil War. Here's director Carrasquillo again. The show has a line where, where Scrooge says, if they'd rather die, they better do it, and we can decrease the surplus population, you know. I really want every politician to hear that line. You know, it's just really interesting how it's become a popular thing to demonize populations, whether it's immigrants or homelessness, or it's really interesting. I have noticed that this year, that line gets a little pushback from the audience. It's like, like they're acknowledging in their breath how horrible of a concept that is. While Lincoln and Dickens may have never met, they were certainly contemporaries in ideology. A Christmas Carol is played at hundreds of theaters across the United States. It's played far more rarely in the UK. For Stephen Schmidt, that's because the US gets it, he says. And he can only imagine that Lincoln would have approved of the Ford's theater performance. I've done many, many shows here, and I, as I'm putting together in rehearsals, I often think, I wonder what Mr. Lincoln would think of what we're doing right now. And I must say, that thought in regards to A Christmas Carol just makes me very happy because he would probably, I know he would love it. You know what I mean? It's so many of the things that Abraham Lincoln was for, Charles Dickens was for, and trying to get that word out about, let's take care of people. For Monocle, at Washington's Ford's Theater, I'm Chris Chermack. Thank you, Chris. And performances of A Christmas Carol at Ford's Theatre run through to the end of the year, or you can always make plans to go next year in Washington. Well, that's all the time we have for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Laura Kramer, Tom Webb and Monica Lillis. Our studio manager was Steph Chunger with editing assistance from Christy O'Grady. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday here in London. Uh, well, we'll be hearing about... Finland's oldest toy factory and Terry Stiasny will be in the studio to go through the papers. The Globalist, well it's back in a couple of days time but for now from me Emma Nelson goodbye, thank you for listening have a great weekend and happy Christmas. Mm-hmm.